I'm preaching right now on the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2 today if you want to uh, open up a Bible or uh, turn to that on your phones. And uh, looking at this interesting Old Testament book, one of the last stories in the chronology of the Old Testament. It's an important time in history for Israel. Israel has been taken off into exile. They've been forced to move to other areas and now they're back. There was a man named Ezra who helped lead the building of the temple. So um, Israel's design, uh, Israel's on a hill. And and then on the peak of that hill is where the temple is. So the temple has been rebuilt. But there's walls surrounding the main city of Israel that have not been rebuilt since they were destroyed some time earlier. They had tried to get that started. Ezra, when he rebuilt the temple was trying to get the walls to be rebuilt. Uh, but the, the king had said that they could not do that, and they were forcibly stopped. They were forcibly stopped, and a lot of the work they had done on the walls and the gates had been burned, had been torn down. And so Israel lies defenseless. And they've been after a 70-year exile. So 70 years, they weren't even in the land. Now you've got generation that, that doesn't remember Israel in any kind of its previous glory or previous state. And without walls, they don't have security. Anybody could attack Israel, and they are at the mercy of anybody else. You can imagine if you have an insecure area, businesses don't want to go there because they don't want to uh, have their livelihood be in threat of being destroyed. And their culture is at risk. If you don't have some some structure around your culture, um, you you tend to lose it. You, You need a good structure so you can understand where your culture is, and it actually helps you understand other cultures better. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He is the one who takes care of the king's arrangements, takes care of the king's food. He has to test the king's wine. And uh, this is not a Jewish king. This is a Persian king. So he does not live in Jerusalem. He does not understand the state of the wall, but his brothers and some other Jews come to visit him. And he finds out that things are not going real well in Jerusalem. He finds out about the shame and about the danger. And he weeps and he prays. And that's what we looked at in chapter 1. As we pick up in chapter 2, Nehemiah is still serving the king. And uh, it's some four months later. He's been weeping and he's been upset about this for some about four months now. And now he's going to finally get a chance to talk to the king about this. And he's finally going to get a chance to do something. So we pick it up in verse 1. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of kings Artaxerxes, I can't always say him either, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I, had, then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why shouldn't, should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins <coughs> and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servants has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah 
to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. Let's stop there. So he's giving wine to the king. He has to test the wine first, make sure the king is not poisoned. And for four months, he has not been sad around the king. He's been sad, but when he, when people do this, right? If you're sad about something, you put on a good front when you're around people, right? You clean up yourself, you wipe up your eyes, you make sure you're not crying before you go out. And so the king doesn't know that he's sad. But on this day, it seems like he can't help it. Or maybe he's being intentional and he's not trying to clean up. He's not trying to hide it. He's ready to talk to the king. When the king sees him, slouched shoulders, puffy eyes, depressed demeanor, whatever he picks up on. The king asks, why? But Nehemiah is afraid. He's afraid to talk about this as he should be. Because the king has already previously stopped the work in Jerusalem. The king is not going to want to tick off all the other countries around there, all the other little nations that he supports that didn't want those walls built in the first place. If you're ruling over a bunch of people, you don't want the people you're ruling over getting stronger. You want them weak so that you can control them. And so in asking and talking about this with the king, Nehemiah is taking great risk. The king rules absolutely. And so if he says this isn't going to happen, this isn't going to happen. And if he says Nehemiah has to be beheaded, Nehemiah gets beheaded. But he takes the risk. He starts out with a great line. Let the king live forever. Let the king live forever. I don't think he's just just kissing up at this point. I think he genuinely cares about the king he's working for. But he wants to make sure he's saying right off the bat that I'm not anti-you. Right? I'm not against you. My problem is not with you. But, but the land where my fathers are buried, the land of my people, the city is destroyed. The gates are burned. The king asks, what do you request? And then it's a real quick line. Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven. This is what we sometimes call arrow prayers. Do you do this in your life? Lord, help me right now. That's it. That's all you got. Lord, help me right now. Lord, give me a wise wisdom right now. Lord, don't let me die in this moment. Um, those are called arrow prayers. And they're great prayers. If you don't have arrow prayers in your life, you ought to. Because it's not just a, 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 something you do when you need to. It's a great way of bringing God into the little moments of your life. Lord, help me with this. Lord, Lord, make me, help me. This conversation is going to be difficult. Help me. And so he has this little arrow prayer right there. We don't even know what it is. But a real quick prayer, and then he continues the conversation. If it pleases the king, and if I found favor, let me go and let me build. So the conversation continues. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. So this is probably when when the queen is sitting beside. She didn't often sit in in, um, real official capacities. This is probably a more private, intimate discussion. How long... Will you be gone? And when you, will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. 
for the good hand of my God was upon me. The king asked a question, right? How long are you going to be gone? He trusts Nehemiah. Nehemiah has, in his, in his life, built up a character, right? He's one of the most trusted people of the king. He's the person that has most access to poison or kill the king. This is a very trusted person, and he's handled that responsibility with care. And so he has built up the character, and he's built up the credibility to have the king trust him in this moment. Do you have a character that people will trust? That people will give you a little lenience to follow God's will? Nehemiah gives him a time and the kings agree. He asks for letters for the, for the nations he's going to have to pass through to give him permission to go. He asks for timber for both the city and for the house. Think about this. Nehemiah has planned this out. He hasn't just prayed about it. He hasn't just been weeping for months. He knows exactly what he needs. Okay, king, if you're willing, then I need a letter, and I need the timber, and I need... He knows how long it's going to take. He has actually plotted this out. He hasn't just prayed. He's planned. He knows the authorization he needs. He has some sense of what it's going to take to build what when he's there. He's not just been praying. He's been planning. A lot of times when we wait for God, we pray, but we don't plan. We pray, but we don't plan. Or we plan and we don't pray. And Nehemiah has been doing both. And that is a great way to live your life. Pray and plan both. Hold your hands with a little bit of a loose grip that God might change them. But don't just wait for God to do everything in your life without planning. It doesn't work that way. Not for Nehemiah, at least. The king granted him. Why? Because of the good hand my God was upon me. You remember that word, those words. The good hand of God is upon you. There should be great boldness in your life knowing that God is, uh, is, has got his hand at work in your life. You are not the only source of your power. God is at work and his hand is upon you. And you can trust that and be bold to do sometimes some risky things. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the providence beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen. Okay, pause. He's got a military group with him. He's got soldiers. He's got horses. This comes across a little bit intimidating. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. He comes to those governors, gives them the letter from the king, and they are upset. We have our first little hint of resistance. Of course, he knew there was going to be resistance. He got the letters from the king in the first place. But there are people who don't want Israel to be strong. If you're, if you're somebody around Israel, right, at that time, you don't want a strong Israel. You want a weak place you know you can push around. You know you can break in there at any time. You know you can take over that at any time. You don't want strong neighbors. You want a weak neighbor. And so... They start resisting already, starting to question. And we'll see as the book goes on, they have more and more effort to try to stop the plan. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. 
I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So he goes from one area to another, makes this journey. If he's still in Susa, the citadel that he was in chapter 1, understand that's about a 979-mile journey. Okay, This wasn't like a, well, we'll just skip over to Jerusalem. He's way on the other side of the empire. Okay, In these days, you don't just get in your car and drive 900 and some odd miles. It takes a while to get there. So he goes through this long journey. And what's the first thing he does in the new land? And when he gets to Jerusalem, he talks to contractors, right? Starts a big motivational cap, uh, campaign to market the idea of building the walls. He tries to get everybody on board. No, the text says... He's there three days before he does anything. He's there three days before he does anything. He doesn't charge in. He rests and recuperates from a long journey. It is essential to rest. We see this in the Bible a lot. From the Old Testament idea of Sabbath to Jesus sometimes going out in the wilderness to rest and to pray. Rest is important. That's not our instinct, right? Our instinct is, i got to get this stuff done, i got to charge in. That's really my instinct, right? I can just stay up, I can stay up real late into the wee hours of the morning to get stuff done. I charge at stuff. I work at stuff. And that is not Nehemiah's idea. Nehemiah rests. He waits. He pauses. He refreshes. What he understands is he can go in and start charging, but he's going to burn out. What he needs to do... What, what's best for God's will is a well-rested and well-prepared Nehemiah. You need to rest. Too often we charge in and we don't rest. And our drive to run full speed ahead is evidence of who we think is our real source of power. Right? When we charge in and we got to do it ourselves, you know what we're saying? I got to do this. I got to get this done. When we pause and we rest and we wait, you know what we're saying? That God is going to do this. That the real source of my power is God. When's the last time you really rested? Really refreshed? Took a day to do nothing? We take a day off to do work at our house. And we take vacation to run around like crazy people in somebody else's town. Where is our sense of rest? Nehemiah has it. He's got big work to do. And what he knows is I better rest a couple days before I get started. Then what does he do? He gets up in the middle of the night without telling. He hasn't told anybody why he's there. He just shows up, waits a couple days, and then in the middle of the night, he starts walking around. Now, it lists all these gates. We're not totally sure where all these gates are. Um, but what, we know a couple things. First of all, he hasn't talked to anybody about what he's doing. He wants his own perspective on what's going on. You ever get people's advice, but you want to like front load them on what they ought to say? You ever done that with somebody? Like, okay, all right, I need your advice on this, and here's what I think first. 
You're just trying to get everybody to affirm what you already think. He wants fresh eyes on the problem. He does not want to hear everybody else's complaints. And here's the other thing. He doesn't want everybody complaining that he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't want everybody to say, oh, you, you're, you don't even live here. You don't know the walls and how to... No, he wants to get on the ground, see for himself, and start to create a plan before he's tinted by everybody else's opinion. And the other interesting thing that he does is he takes a different perspective, perspective from the people. If you follow this in the, in, on a map, what you find is that Nehemiah does not stay in the city. What he does is he goes outside the city and looks at the city from an enemy's perspective. Right? He walks around the outside of the walls saying, okay, if I was a bad guy, if I was an enemy, I could get in there, and I could get in there, and that spot's weak, and we have to firm that up. He takes the perspective of somebody else and walks around and says, these are the key points we've got to go on. And he makes a plan. Text also said he, he, he tells no one what God had put in his heart to do, and I love that phrase. What has God put in your heart to do? What does God make your heart ache, your belly ache for in this world? Big question. Now he's got to raise support. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for good work. He finally goes out. He starts talking to people and said, let's build this wall. Let's do this. The king has given us permission to do this. The king has blessed me on my journey to do this. Let's get this thing done. And the people know it needs done, but they must have thought it could never be done. They must have thought, oh, this is never going to happen. We're going to be in this weak state forever. But as he speaks, and as he gives perspective, as he gives them new hope, what does the text say? It says that their hands were strengthened for good work. You ever had your hands strengthened? You ever had weak hands? You ever been like, I really don't want to do this? You ever had a task around your house? I really should clean that up. But I could still watch Wheel of Fortune. Why would I go clean that up? Right? I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength. I don't want to go do that. I don't want to get that done. But God gives them the strength in, strength in their hands. Right? This is what it's like to exercise. Right? It's terrible to get outside the door. It's terrible to get outside the door. It's terrible to get started. I don't want to get started. I don't want to get started. But, but God strengthens them to say, yes, we can do this. We've all felt this in our life, right? That, okay, we can do this. And we felt this around this church as we've tried to do some really big things that we didn't think were possible and God strengthened our hands for it. And we got to work. And you know what? We've got a roof and we've got a boiler and we've got a lift. And we've got a different kind of energy around this church because God strengthened our hands. The chapter finishes noting that these other, these other leaders and it starts to get around to some of the other leaders around Israel um, are hearing about this and they get upset. They're not wanting Israel to get stronger because what they understand is Israel getting stronger is a threat to them. A strong Israel is a threat to everyone around and so there's resistance. And we're going to see that build as the story goes. 
But Nehemiah's response is clear. God is going to do something. God will make us prosper. But notice also, there's, there's both. God will make us prosper, and we better arise and start building the walls. Who's building the walls? The people or God? And the answer is, yes. God is working through the people. So we leave Nehemiah there today. He has been very strategic in getting work done, building up so that he could succeed. And the people are beginning to respond. But also the resistance is growing. We leave the world of Nehemiah to return to our world. And I ask you to consider a couple questions. What has God set in your heart to do? What has God put in your heart to do in this world? Maybe we do that as a church, but maybe God has put something particular in your heart in this world. Are you resting enough to be sharp enough to follow God's calling? Are you taking care of yourself enough so that when God puts something in your heart, you can respond to it? Or are you always maxed out and always tired and never have the energy and you're going to miss out on a lot of what God has for you because you're not taking care of yourself? Are you relying on God or yourself? If you're maxed out, constantly working, you need to put your trust in somebody a little other than yourself. Trust God in those moments. And what areas of your life do you need to walk, like Nehemiah, looking at the wall to inspect? Where are the weak points in your life that you need to rest, that you need to build up, that you need to get stronger? Need some inspection in your life today. May God strengthen our hands for the work that he sets for us to do. Amen. Let us respond to God.